me and Joe have tried to go through this series that we have a better understanding of the doctrine of the church that the Bible gives to us. As you probably all are well aware, we've tried to start with a really broad, firm foundation of what the church is, first in its universal and local dimensions, and then we've gone and we've examined several different things trying to continually hone in to our own particular responsibilities to the church of God. And Joey started that the last couple weeks. You might remember the two imperatives that we must have in order to practice our duties towards one another is we must know two things. What, what should we know? What do we have to be striving to know in order to fulfill God's commandments to one another in Scripture? Know each other? Yes. So we have to know people. We have to know the individual faces, personalities, and characters within our own local congregation if we are to love one another. We have to know our own sinful tendencies to be able to rebuke one another. We have to know our own strengths to be able to mark one another out so that we can follow after one another. But there's a second thing we have to know, which was the first thing I think Joey started with. Oh, it's okay. No doctrine. Yeah. So if we are to live with one another in a good, compelling way that we're going to build one another up in love continually, we have to know one another, seek one another out, get to know one another, and we have to be well acquainted with the Word of God so that we can minister to one another. One of the prime texts that me and Joey have gone to and will continue to go to as we are examining our particular duties is Romans chapter 15. Where the Apostle Paul tells the Christians there whom he never met, at least at this point, he says in verse 14, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. And we see both things there, don't we? You're able to instruct one another, you have a a good knowledge of one another, but also he's satisfied that they're filled with all knowledge. They're, They're able to instruct one another in good doctrine. And so today we continue, and we're going to be looking, I think, me and Joey have a hard time trying to outline this last part, all the duties that we have as members. Today we're going to look at the overarching duty that we all have, that consumes every other duty that we have, and that is to love one another, okay? And I just want us to see that this is the guiding principle and the foundation that must underlie all of our duties in the Christian church. We cannot be like the Pharisees who established a list of do's and don'ts that we would do, but it was just cold, formulaic externalism. Rather, we must have a heart that loves our brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is obviously given to us in the new birth by Jesus Christ. Uh, Turn with me, and you're already in John chapter 13. Notice verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. And we notice here the great trial and perplexity that must have been in Jesus' mind at this very time. It's the evening of the Passover, and Christ Himself knows better than anybody that this Passover was instituted 1,500 years earlier as a shadow of what He was going to do this very night. 
As that lamb was slain and its blood was put on the doorposts of those houses, Jesus knew that He was going to be slain for the sins of the world. But this Lamb of God bore the sins of all of His people. But that did not give Christ the excuse to stop loving His people. We notice that He, having loved those who were given to Him, so throughout His whole ministry, He loved His people. And now, even in this most dire of circumstances, He loved them to the end. That was the testimony of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we know that because of His love, in verse 35 of chapter 13, we'll start in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. How ought we to love one another? Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, we see that we are commanded to love as Jesus loved, but we should have it firmly in our minds that it's not just that Jesus is a good example to us and thus we are to love, but rather, Jesus in dying on the cross, He took ourselves, our whole persons, to Him to pay our debt, and to rise again to new life so that we can say truly that we are united together in Jesus Christ. We are one with Him. He is our body. Or He is our head, rather. We are His body. He is our husband. We are His bride. Right? He is the vine. We are the branches. He is the cornerstone of the temple. And we are the stones being built upon that cornerstone. We are intimately and organically connected spiritually to Jesus Christ and united to Him. And if that is true, what does that imply about our union to one another? That's a real question. Together we're in Christ. Right. We are... Yeah, not, we're not poetically united to Christ. We're not united to Christ just because we try to obey His laws. We really are united to Him. And because of that, we are really, truly united to one another by faith. We really are one another. And through Jesus Christ abiding in Him, love grows in the body of Christ. We love because Christ first loved us, and He imbues the love of the new covenant into His covenant people. Now, He doesn't do that perfectly all at once. But rather, He commands us to love and to grow in love. Now, this is a, an absolute certainty, though. If there is no love in our hearts for the brethren, there can be no confidence that we belong to Jesus Christ. There is no love... Only hatred, only enmity, only hostility to the church and the people of God. There can be no assurance in our hearts that we are part of Him. That is how strong the commandment to love is in the New Testament. Um, so it is our union with Christ that gives us the context of this command for love. And I want us to turn to Romans chapter 12. We're going to be going a few places. I tried to narrow it down because the commands for love are so ubiquitous, so full in the Scriptures. Romans chapter 12. I want us to notice that in verse 9, 
Paul starts to give, you might have in the ESV, marks of a true Christian. And you might, you might say the duties that we have to one another. And I want us to notice what heads up that list. Let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. This is the overarching command that we have in Scripture. And as John Owen says, we ought to be careful that our graces, love abounding in our hearts, is what is the compelling force to all of our duties. Okay? It's the compelling force to all of our duties. We have graces given by the Lord Jesus Christ, which is talked about in Galatians chapter 5 and verses 20 through 22, which you know very well, the fruit of the Spirit. And the head of that list is love. Notice with me. Galatians 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So, just giving a general context to these things, we see in the New Testament, because of our, our relationship to Jesus Christ, He gives love to His church. Love flows through Him and from Him. And in this text here, we see that the head of the list of the fruit of the Spirit is love. And so... As we consider these things, I want us also to see not just the love that we are to have, but that we are to have a particular love for one another. Okay? Now, we know that we are to love all people. Right? If we consider the command, where do we see in Scripture that we're to love all people regardless of their spiritual condition? Love your neighbor as yourself, right? Right? Um, now, it's the Pharisaic heart that says, but who's my neighbor, right? Um, my neighbor, I like to consider my neighbor those who like the exact same things that I do, who dress the same way I do, who look the same way I do, who make the same kind of money that I make. That, that's my neighbor, right? I can draw that circle as tight as I want, but Jesus takes all of that, blows it out of the water, and he tells us that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, Regardless, all human beings are our neighbor and we ought to love our neighbor as ourselves. That is the command given to all people, lost or saved, that we must love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, turn with me to 1 Peter 1.22. And I want us to see that while that is absolutely, undeniably the case, I believe that the Bible speaks very clearly that we are to have a particular kind of love for those who are in the church, those who are Christians in the universal church, but also a particular kind of love for those who are in our local congregation. Notice with me in 1 Peter 1, and I'm going to read from, I think, verses 22 through the end of the chapter. Notice, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God, for all flesh is like grass and its glory is like the field of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains Forever, And this is the good news that was preached to you. 
So we see in verse 22 something rather shocking. Since we have been born again, or I'm sorry, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So as we consider the command that we have here, how are we to love one another? With a pure heart. What does that mean? Without hypocrisy. And that, that's what's being pointed out as well with the sincere brotherly love. This is, in, in fact, in the Greek, a hypocrites. So this is without hypocrisy. We're also to love one another fervently, right? And both of these words, sincere and fervently, they point to the fact that we cannot be loving one another in a cold, mechanistic kind of way. Now, to prove to you, I, I think very clearly that Peter does not mean for this to just be a general love for all Christians everywhere, but particularly focused to a local congregation. We see in chapter 5 of the same book that Peter is writing and assuming that the Christians reading this book are in local congregations. Notice verse 1, So I exhort the elders where? Among you. As a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And we can see the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. As Paul is trying to solve the problems of the Corinthian church, he points to the fact that they ought to have specific love for one another. This love must be focused in the love of the church. And we see here the shocking language in 1 Peter 1.22 that we love one another earnestly from a pure heart since we have been born again, right? We've been born again. We've been made new by the Spirit of God and through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And therefore, we ought to love one another. Um, another text that I hope shows the particular love that we ought to have for one another is in Romans chapter 13. I know I'm taking you all over the place. I apologize. Romans 13 And this is in the context of paying taxes. Notice in verse 7, or verse 6, For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers, deacons literally of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And then notice verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves has fulfilled the law. Now, when Paul says, owe no one anything, his point is, with respect to all the taxes and honor that we owe to authorities, we should be so scrupulous on that that nobody can look to us and say, you didn't pay what you owed, right? We should be honoring, we should be paying what we should be paying. But with the commandment of love, it's as if it's the continual debt in the Christian heart. Don't owe anybody anything 
be free from owing other men anything financially, but you should always have it in your heart that you love one another. That is the debt that always needs to be paid to one another, right? That's a shocking statement to have. The love that Jesus Christ has showed to us is so wonderful and so great that love to one another, and I would say here, again, Romans written to a particular congregation of people that they would have applied this congregationally. Do do we have any questions thus far? Or any other texts that would come to mind that we have a particular love that we ought to give to the saints, especially in our own local churches? Brother. To love one another? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, and I, I say that because to love each other, he could have said to love, to love all men, but the words each other in almost, I think every instance in the New Testament are talking about the people that are in their local communities, right? Yeah. I guess. Yeah. He's paying taxes outside that community. Yeah. He, he, he is, um, and I'm not saying that he's abrogating that you don't need to love them, but I think that Paul's particular focus with his language is to the Roman people that you love each other. Um, and you're right, brother, you're right. But the particular context is to these Romans, and we're going to see in chapter 14 that he works that out in particular among this congregation, Right? That there were some that were so convicted of the Mosaic law that they were not eating meat sold in the marketplaces. There were some who esteemed one day as better than another. There was all sorts of things going on in this church, but they were to love one another by setting aside their own scruples and authority. So, we see that we are to love all men. We are to love Christians in particular, but I believe that there's a special kind of love that we are to be focused on and striving for in our local churches. And again, the reason for that is because it's so much harder to love people that we're close to than people that are far from us, to give ourselves for it, to say we're zealous to love our neighbor. It's usually easier to do that to people that are far away from us than people that are near. Um, But the real focus of what I want to get to today It's not the particular love that we have for one another, even though that's true, but the quality of that kind of love. And Brother Joey has already pointed out some of it, that our love would be sincere, that is, unhypocritical. Now, we see that language in two of the passages that we've already read. In 1 Peter 1.22, it's to let our love be sincere. And then in Romans chapter 12 as well, it says, let love... Be genuine. The same Greek word is used here. Let love be without hypocrisy, literally. So, what does it mean to have an unhypocritical love towards one another? I think in First Peter, when it's playing off the word purifier, uh-huh, uh-huh. and it's like, seeing as you purified by obeying God's command, you purified your hearts in obeying the Lord's commands. It seems like purification there has something to do with the, the sacrifice of Christ and therefore obeying what Christ has laid down, right? So I, I think the genuineness of that love in the context is a, is a Christian love. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In other words, I don't think there's a, there's a pure love that can be 
exist apart from Christ. I, yes, I agree. It's not purified by obedience to the truth, right? Yeah, and that's kind of what I was trying to drive at, that true love is bound up and given to us when we have been born again by God. Right? His word, his law has been written into our hearts. Love has been imbued into our souls. And that plays itself out in a, a striving for obedience to the truth. Right, And love being a, ahead of that command. If we're not striving for love, we certainly aren't striving for obedience and therefore it would be hypocritical. What other ways can we be hypocritical in our love? Maybe to put a finer point on that, how does the Bible talk about us being hypocritical in our love? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a great text for, for loving all people, not just Christians, right? That um, we, we aren't to just greet those who are just like us. And within the church, that's true. We can create community, right? We, we tend to have, in our American evangelicalism, we create Bible studies for, you know, guys that like to shoot guns, Bible study, right? Or, you know women under 30s who like to go to the bowling alley, Bible study, or something like that. We, we try to create community by taking these fleshly ideas of what we like in the world and then trying to build a spiritual community around that. But what Jesus is in part saying there is that we are not just to greet those and accept those and love those who are just like us, but all kinds of different people. So turn with me to 1 John. We can be hypocritical... In our love, when our love is only in speech. Right? 1 John, chapter 3. 1 John 3. Notice verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart to him... How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk. And he doesn't mean you can't say loving things. So don't love in word and talk. It's don't love in word and talk only, right? But in deed and in truth, right? So the deed part there is that we are, just as Christ laid down his life for the church, laid down his life for his friends, we are to sacrifice lovingly and willingly for one another that we should not be content that our love was merely on our lips. You know, good morning, brother. Love you, brother. I love the church. But I never would do anything for them. I never open my doors of my house to greet them. I never let them stay with me. I'd never give them a, a brotherly handshake. I really don't like them that much. I don't want to be stuck in the same car with them because they'll talk too much. Right? It must be in deed and in truth. Okay? So, this is a, a correction, and I think a very good logical correction, that we ought to be aware that as we come to church and gather together that our love is not hypocritical, meaning it's only external, it's only on our lips, but it's never in action. But I think there's a second way. Yeah, brother. There's a, I assume it's progressive. Because mm-hmm. we don't just get, we're not just born again and the light switch goes on and we just love everybody with pure, uh, with sincere, unhypocritical love. I mean, there's people 
even after you've been saved a long time, you just don't quite. Oh, yes. Yeah, we should. I mean, we're, we're progressing towards that point, and eventually we will, in glory, love everyone. Oh, yeah. But, but we can't just... Look no, 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 and, and, you, and you're right. And I'm not in any means saying that because it would make the commands of Scripture nonsense, right? To say that we're born again, we instantly love everybody as we ought to love them, right? That would mean that we're perfect law fulfillers because love fulfills the law, Right? So the commands of Scripture are given, but sanctification, right? So we're born again, we're justified, and at that moment, God sanctifies us and begins progressive sanctification. But we don't start at zero and then progress. We start at, I don't know, ten or something. God really does put love in our hearts, a true love, a sincere love to a degree. Not as pure as it should be, not as sincere as it should be, but He starts it there, okay? And we are to progress in it. And that's why John writes this. He's not saying that you pass the homeless guy on the street and you didn't give him money. You're not a Christian. Okay? Now, I think that he's saying you maybe should have done it. Right? You shouldn't have closed your heart against him. And I'm not saying every time you do that, understand me. Okay? You can have good and right and holy and righteous reasons for doing that. But... We ought to examine ourselves, is the love of God growing in our hearts? And if we are continually just shutting our hearts to our brothers, it's saying, does the love of God exist in you? Okay? So, how else can our love be hypocritical? I think that we can turn to 1 Corinthians 13. Now, the reason for this is because I think that we have reacted so much against our American culture that is full of squishy sentimentality, right? That we ought to love one another, and what that means is we feel good about one another. We've reacted against that and said, well, love is action. Full stop. Okay? Full stop. Because the error there is that my duty, regardless of internal feeling, is love. Now, I think that we should be able to see just on the face of that that that's a silly notion. But I think 1 Corinthians 13 makes it very clear. Why do I say that? Well, notice verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Notice verse 3. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned... But have not love, I gain nothing. I don't know anybody that would say that the giving up of all that you have is not an act of love in some respect, right? And the apostle here is trying to give the most extreme instance of human sacrifice. I'll give my own body to be burned and I'll give up everything that I possibly own. How rare do we see that in this world? And yet, the Apostle says, those acts of love without the internal character of love in our hearts, without true affection, you gain nothing by it. You gain nothing. We must have affection for one another. Now, that's the hard part, right? It's easy to say, well, love's action. So, treat one another good, okay? Don't be mean to one another. But the Bible, I think, goes much, much, much further than that. And I think 
that we see this in Jesus Christ. I think that all of us would say, oh, what blasphemy it would be to say that Jesus Christ said, well, I don't really have to feel anything for my disciples. I just have to lay down my life for them. We know that's not the case. When John 13.1 says that he loved, having loved those who were in the world, he loved them to the end, he loved them with the affection of his heart. He even loved those who had never come to him. Now, that's a different, maybe a special kind of love to his disciples. But how do we know that he loved even those who didn't come to him? Well, first he obeyed the general command to love his neighbors himself, right? But when he looked upon the crowds, what did he have? He had compassion for them, right? And if you remember this Greek word, it means his his bowels were, were moved, his, in, his insides, when he looked at these people, you felt that when you looked at a, a child in distress or something, that you're just, your stomach kind of does something, whatever it is, right? That's what Jesus felt looking on the crowds because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, this is the most convicting thing that we can have, and this is what we're getting at. Love is not only to be unhypocritical, but as Peter said, love one another earnestly. Love one another earnestly. This cannot be divorced from our affections in some way, shape, or form, right? It must be earnest. It must be fervent. It must be fervent. Um, do, we, do we have any questions about this? Or thoughts? Yes, brother. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, I think that it means that love, I think, first refuses to hold account, right? That's what we see in 1 Corinthians 13. The love doesn't keep a record of wrongdoing, right? It's willing to cover it, right? The word covering is very important in Scripture, and uh, we've gone over this before, I think, but Adam and Eve in the garden, right? They tried to cover themselves, but it was the wrong kind of covering, right? It was a covering of self-righteousness, a covering of their own works, a covering of trying to hide from God. But God himself covers their sins, right? Um, We read in the Proverbs, and I don't know if I can give you the exact place, but it's the glory of kings to search out a matter, right? And the idea there is the king is a judge, and so it's his glory to go and find out who's guilty and to punish them. But it's the glory of God to cover a matter, right? So I think that what's really been talking about is forgiveness of sins um, and overlooking of certain sins without even bringing them up, I think is what's being talked about here. Um, it, does that answer your question at all, or is there a deeper question? Okay. Um, love covers a multitude of sins. Okay, So all kinds of sins are committed against one another in the church. And if you've been in church for any amount of time, you know that. We rub one another the wrong way. Serious, grievous sins are committed. Small, slight infractions. Evil thoughts against one another happen in the church. Annoyances. Refusal. To be close to one another, right? Love covers a multitude of sins. But we don't turn a blind eye. 
Uh, in some instances, we do. We do. Uh, now, a blind eye might be a strong word. Um, but we don't bring up every instance of sin committed against us because if we had a keen enough eye, we would never do anything but bring up sins against ourselves, right? Um, some of you are thinking things about me right at this moment, probably, that maybe aren't, you wouldn't want projected on the screen, which is, which is our human nature, right? But we are to cover some of those. But if it is a scandalous thing and a hurtful thing, a thing that we can't get out of our mind, then we need to bring it to our brothers and sisters so that it might be covered. Does that make sense? Um, but I, I, I do not buy the idea that we ought to be looking for every particular instance that we find of sinfulness and bringing it up, right? There are some things we need to just cover, cover in grace. Um, brother. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, because we, we, have a, we have a special people because we, we're closer to them. Yeah, okay. And so if you're not convinced of my argument that some of the texts that we read are in particular aimed at local congregations, I think that the logical end that we experience every day is sufficient to prove the point. And what do I mean by that? That there's this idea of moral proximity, okay? That... Any commandments and duties that are given to me, I have more of a moral obligation to perform those to people that are close to me than people that are far from me, okay? So let's say, feed the poor, okay? I I have more of an obligation and duty to do that in my own family first, right? If I have an actual physical brother that is struggling with poverty, I'm to help him before I help the people that are outside of that. I'd say within my own church, I am more morally culpable to help poor people within our church than even the community, but then I'm more responsible for the people in the community than in Northwest Ohio and more, you, you understand what I'm saying, right? And so I think that the particular command to love those in our congregation is related to how close we are together and the fact that we have covenanted together, right? We've come before the church and said before everybody that I promise to walk with you in love. And so we have a, a, a better culpability toward that. But with Christians in themselves, we just share in Jesus Christ. You know, well, there is a greater distance between us and the people of the world than I think we realize in our standing. And, and we have a particular love for the, for the saints in that way. I think it might be helpful to point to Ephesians 5. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Husbands, love your wives as Christ 
Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He didn't give himself up for everyone. He gave himself up for his bride. Mm -hmm. And so you can see right there, there's a category difference in the love of Christ for the bride and the love that Christ has for the world. So even in Christ, we see there is a difference. Yeah, amen. That's good, brother. Amen. Amen. Um, and so, uh, as we conclude today, I, my goal, and I, if you take anything away from it, I know that I went a couple confusing directions perhaps, but the goal of what I had is for us to see very plainly in Scripture that we are commanded to love one another. This isn't an optional thing. It's not a Christian gift, okay, that I have the gift of love. This is a commandment for everybody that we must love one another. And that love has particular focus to Christians, and in particular those who are closest to in your local congregation, and that there is a quality to that love that we have to pay attention to. That it is unhypocritical. It's not just on the lips, it's in the actions, but it's not just in the actions. We must be developing it in our heart and in our affections, okay? And we have to be zealous for this. And I'm going to read a couple passages, and I'm going to ask you how we can do this. Notice, and we know this very well, this passage. 1 Corinthians 13, 13 into 14, 1. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. And I'm sure you've heard before, the reason why it abides is because when we get to glory in heaven, there's no reason to, as Hebrews defines faith, faith in things unseen, because we're going to see the object of our faith in heaven. Faith disappears. Hope is what's going to come to us. And hope will be gone one day. But love will always abide and will be perfected eternally in us in heaven. 14.1 says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So, focusing on that first part, pursue love. This word pursue, it's the same word translated in Matthew that we've gone through so many times. It means persecute, right? To chase after. A persecutor chases after the church, hunts it down. We are to pursue love. Pursue love. Now, if love means not just actions, but affections and all these different things, how do we do that? How do we pursue love in a practical way? First, we must put ourselves in the context where love is possible. Okay? If love has to do with the affections, loving one another, being zealous to love one another, and the actions, the words, and the, the thought life, we must put ourselves in that context. We must be around one another, right? doesn't make any sense to divorce ourselves totally from the context where this command can be obeyed. We must, right? What's another way we can pursue love? Prayer. Thank you, brother. Prayer. We must pray to the Lord. Call out to the Lord. If this is the overarching and the foundational aspect to all of our obedience and all of our duties to one another, must we not call out to God, God, help me to love, right? I, 
It's very tempting as a pastor, and I think that others could attest to this, that 1 Corinthians 13 is so convicting because it's, it's very possible to deliver prayers and sermons that might be you know, good to, the, to our own standards or the world's standards, so to speak, and it be devoid of actual love for the people that are under your charge. It can be easy to, to get on Facebook and post, you know, Verses, which is good, okay? But to do it without love is the, that's the real hard part. So we must pray, we must call out to God. I don't love as I ought to love, and all of us should be able to confess that. I don't love as I ought to love. Help me to love like Jesus Christ, okay? How else do we pursue love? Mm-hmm. Like, if we are loving one another, it's not my own selfish gain that you mm-hmm. like me or this, that, or the other, but that I would selflessly have your best interest and mm-hmm. love you according to what would be your best, um, but the Lord. Amen, brother. Yeah, we have to have a corporate mindset, which is so, and I know I've, I'm always saying it, so contrary to our American experience where we're only really thinking about ourselves almost all of the time, but Philippians chapter 2 says this. It says, Do nothing, in verse 3, from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Right? What a, what a mind-blowing verse that is. We are commanded in the church, when we think about other people, say, that, that person is better than I am. In some degree. Right? I don't know how else to read that text. That person is more significant than me in some aspect. And therefore, I'm going I'm to love them as I love myself. Okay? Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So, we have to put ourselves in the context. We have to pray. We have to think corporately. I would say, maybe primarily. Prayer is part of this, but that we must be constantly thinking about the gospel and the love that God has for us in it. Okay? We love. Why? Because He first loved us. Right? Now that applies to loving the Lord. But I would tell you, it also applies to loving one another. And the case that I would make from this, and I hope to make a better case for this over the next weeks, because we're running out of time, but in Galatians chapter 5 that we already were in, Okay, talking about the fruit of the Spirit, I think something that we rarely consider when we think of the fruit of the Spirit is how Paul uses Spirit in this text. Um, in Galatians, the Spirit is always contrasted to something. What is the Spirit contrasted to in our experience in the book of Galatians? Flesh, right. Especially the works of the flesh, right? Right. The works of self-righteousness. We see in, well, let's go to Galatians chapter 3. I've I got to stop at some point here. But Galatians, Galatians 3, notice uh, verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. That's through Paul's preaching. 
Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or hearing by faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit that you're now being perfected by the flesh? Notice how Paul almost uses the Spirit and faith as synonymous terms here, right? To be in the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, to be filled with the person of the Holy Spirit is always connected to how much we are focused on the Gospel, right? The fruit of the Spirit, I would propose to you, is the fruit of having a fervent faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? It's not necessarily a mystical experience. It's by focusing on Christ, refusing to put my own works into the the equation of my acceptance to God and saying, I believe in Jesus Christ, that He suffered for me, He died for me. And the more I believe that, the more I focus on that and abide in Christ by believing the Gospel, the Spirit is pleased with that and is pleased to produce fruit in our lives. And one of those, the primary one being love. And I would be so bold as to say, if you show me a Christian that truly gives himself to meditating on the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, to thinking about it, to transforming his life by those truths, renewing his mind according to the gospel that is preached in Romans chapters 1 through 11, that person will grow in love. Inevitably grow in love. Because it's not possible to do otherwise. Do we have any questions or thoughts? A couple minutes? I'm going to pray for us. Father, we come before you in the name of your Son, uh, who is love. Who is love. God is love. And Jesus Christ is the reflection of his perfect nature and character. Lord, we are, we don't love. I do not love as I ought to love. How convicting it is to see the amount of love that we are to display towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. And God, I pray that you would help us to love one another. I pray that you would. Make us abound in it and overflow in it. That we'd count one another more significant than ourselves. That we'd cover sin. God, that we'd do all things in love. Um, God, as your apostle wrote in 1 Corinthians 16, I believe, let all that you do be done in love. I pray that that would be our testimony, God. And this can only be by your grace. And we pray that it would, it would come to us and help us. In Jesus' name, amen.